All right, Toby, here you go, man. Um, I'm just going to record this once uh, through without uh, stopping. So I'll probably fuck it up a bunch. Um, what This is the first uh, chapter of the short novel that I'm going to put out in April. And um, it's 17 pages, so who knows how long that'll take me. Uh, so bear with me. Um, uh, I've not been uh, practicing. I have been a bit under the weather and I got all kinds of excuses. But uh, fuck it. I owe you this. So uh, here we go. Suicide Squeeze, the Colton Lacombe story. Top of the first, the leadoff hitter. Baseball had always been a kind of sanctuary for Colton Lacombe. Once he stepped onto the field, especially when he stood in the chalked rectangle of the batter's box, ready to pounce on the first good pitch he saw, the world outside couldn't fuck with him. He was in control. It had been that way since he was 12 years old. The ball field was a refuge. The one place with a set of rules that some asshole adult couldn't change on a whim. It didn't take a genius to see that the chaos of his parents' divorce played a role in the way Colton came to need the game. But that realization only came later, once he was old enough to understand what had really been going on, and then to act accordingly to numb the pain. As a kid, it was just baseball. Every afternoon and every weekend. Any kind of way he could get it. Colton played got better, and eventually distinguished himself as one of the best young prospects in le- around Lake Charles, Louisiana. He progressed faster than his peers because he needed the game more. It was more than a game, and all that practice, which really wasn't anything more complicated than a bright, athletic boy insulating himself from the, re- from the realities of life, well, it paid off. By the time his senior year rolled around, the college scouts were looking at him. But then he went to jail for three months, and the one possibility of a future he had evaporated, just like that. Or at least, that's what he believed all through the dark months leading up to his incarceration and those first few anxious weeks in jail when there was nothing like hope to cling to. Only fear. Only anxiety. The symbolism wasn't lost on Colton. He'd been picked up on suspicion twice before, but managed to talk his way out of it. But when three cop cars came out of nowhere, just as he and two new acquaintances with suspended licenses, outstanding warrants, and a taste for cheap speed pulled away from a house they had no business at, in a neighborhood where white people only went for one reason, Colton knew it was his third strike. There would be no way of talking his way out of this shit. Things could have gone either way. He might have just leaned into the hard lessons that Paris Jail, the minor leagues of criminal prospects, had to teach if it wasn't for Coach Bo. His old high school coach, the only adult male Colton ever called sir or bothered to listen to, pulled off what Colton could see only as a miracle. Somehow, he talked LSU Eunice into offering a walk-on scholarship and then convinced the judge to let him out in time for the start of the season. 
It wasn't just the nicest thing anyone had ever done for Colton. It was really the only thing, at least of that caliber. You couldn't exactly compare the occasional 12-pack of Dr. Pepper or jumbo pack of sunflower seeds his mom bought him to something like this. Colton had actually got the letter from LSUE right there in the Calcasieu Parish Jail. It had a handwritten note from Coach Larson, the fat and fiery head coach for the Bengals. The man was night and day different from Coach Bo, who still carried that folksy, black way of speaking ingrained in every sugarcane kid that was the progeny of sharecroppers in North Louisiana. Where Coach Bo was a wise and wary black man, careful with his words, Larson at LSUE was his well-known opposite. He was red and ruddy, always ready to mix it up. A hard-charging, bombastic son of a bitch. The envelope from LSUE contained a brochure about the baseball program, a bunch of forms, and a folded note from Coach Larson himself. Consider this your get-out-of-jail card, it read, but it won't be free. And then at the very bottom, the words, prepare to work your ass off. He spent 111 days in jail. The symmetry of those three ones wasn't lost on him. And on the 112th day, he took a Greyhound bus to Eunice. It was 50 miles of interstate to the Crowley exit, then another 20 miles through the rice and soybean fields to Eunice. The LSUE campus was right on the edge of town, tucked into a big bend in the highway that drifted off into the nothingness of the Cajun prairie. If he wasn't so determined to make this work, he might have worried that his skills had flagged. But baseball had always been Colton's true north, and so any worry that was bouncing around his mind was overshadowed by the eagerness to get after it. Baseball wasn't just the only thing, besides his mom, that he truly loved. Now it was like his freedom depended on it. No way he was going to fuck this up. There was just too much at stake. He had only been with the LSUE Bengals for a couple weeks. The season hadn't even officially started, which was good because Colton still had a lot to prove. LSUE might have been an obscure little junior college to a lot of people, but the Bengals were actually a perennial contender at the national JUCO level. He was lucky to have earned a walk-on invitation, and luckier still that his speed and his skills hadn't abandoned him during those two years after high school when he was acting like an idiot in dive bars and sketchy houses all around Lake Charles. In his first address to the team, Coach Larson said, The leadoff man is the spark, and looked dead at Colton. In his mind, Coach was throwing down the gauntlet, saying something like, All right, ex-con, let's see what you got. It was the leadoff hitter's job to get on base by any means necessary to crack the door open, and Colton had always been good at it. Since he was 12 years old, his name was, it was usually his name at the top of the lineup card. At a junior college like LSUE, it's just freshmen and sophomores, so the whole population is made up of short-timers. Everybody's focused on the next move. You couldn't compare it to jail, not really, but Colton couldn't help but see the parallel. LSUE was a transitory place by nature. Time was measured in months instead of years. And everybody had something to prove, even if it was just survival. 
in those first few weeks, just like in CPJ, Colton had to will himself not to be intimidated. He didn't know what any of his teammates knew about his recent past, but he couldn't help but think about it. The field didn't help matters. They called it Bengal Stadium in the brochure, which was definitely a stretch. The stands weren't much bigger than his high school field, but the field itself was way nicer than any he'd ever been on. The infield, a perfectly trimmed muff of green grass, the sculpted A-cup of the mound with its pitching rubber like a band-aid over a nipple, flags on poles like towering erections behind the center field wall. It was a ball player's wet dream. It was also intimidating as fuck. The fields he grew up playing on were pretty plain. But on game days, when small armies of dads descended on the field to cut the grass, drag and water the infield, to paint the foul lines and define the batter's box with chalk, it was like the whole thing transformed into something magic. When he stepped onto the fresh field in his uniform, the sting and the shame of his daddy's absence retreated to that dark place in his heart and Colton felt the special magic of the game lying in wait. There was static energy in the field, just waiting for a spark to set it off. The fields he grew up playing on were pretty plain. But on game days, when small armies of dads descended on the field to cut the grass, drag and water the infield, to paint the foul lines, and to find the batter's box with chalk, it was like the whole thing transformed into something magic. When he stepped onto the fresh field in his uniform, the sting and the shame of his daddy's absence retreated to that dark place in his heart and Colton felt the special magic of the game lying in wait. There was static energy in the field, just waiting for a spark to set it off. As the leadoff hitter, he was always happiest when his team were the visitors because it meant the very first pitch of the game was his. It meant he was the first to step into that fresh batter's box, the first to hit the gleaming new ball the ump would give. The first to hit the gleaming new ball the ump would give the pitcher before he called, "Play ball!" Even now, Colton could still see those perfectly white first pitches coming at him to start the game. They almost never made it to the catcher's glove. Most leadoff hitters worked at the count, but not Colton. His thought had always been to slap the first good pitch he could handle into the gap and stretch his legs. If he came out swinging, a lot of times you could surprise a team. Outfielders would still be fidgeting, not quite ready yet, and here was a ball coming hard and low to their left or right. In that confusion, those brief moments of hesitation, Colton would take the extra base. And before anybody really knew it, there was a man on second with nobody out. Top of the first, one pitch into the game, and there's already a runner in scoring position. Colton took great pride in being the kind of player capable of sowing that kind of confusion into the game. He relished being the scrappy guy opposing coaches told their team to watch out for. By the time he was 13, thanks to nightly push-ups and what Coach Bo would later call his naturally tight fibers, Colton had the power to put the ball over the fence, but he didn't hit that many home runs. His innate need to hit the ball where it was pitched translated, more often than not, to hard and low line drives. 
He'd take an outside pitch to the opposite field, or get out in front of a lazy curveball to hook it into the left field corner, his mind on third base before the ball even hit the fence. But he would always remember his first dinger, not just because it was the first, but because of the prize that came with it. The Little League Park in Lake Charles was actually pretty nice, and really, what gave it that extra something was the advertising that spanned the length of the outfield fence. It was covered with 4x8 sheets of plywood painted with the bright logos of local sponsors. Concrete, lumber, construction, plumbing, real estate, plus the orange and yellow of Popeyes right in center field. If you hit one over the Popeyes sign, you got a free bucket of chicken. Colton took a high and outside pitch from this little dude everybody called Mud and drove it right over the sign for his first ever long ball. The chicken him and his mom had that night had never tasted so good. Sitting there in the molded plastic and bright lights of the restaurant after the game, grass stains on his pants and a thick white ring of dried sweat in his hat, Colton had felt like a man. His mom was so proud of him. But he didn't get his invitation to walk on at LSUE for his power. In fact, that Popeye's home run was one of just three Colton ever hit in a game. He had always been a contact hitter. Whatever house they were living in, he'd get one of those paddles with the ball on the elastic string and tape it to the ceiling fan. With the fan on low and a length of broomstick in his hand, it made a pretty good little pitching machine. By the time Coach Bo took him on as a high school freshman, Colton rarely missed a pitch. He could hit long balls in practice, but that wasn't what he was about. Colton's whole game was about acceleration. Coach Bo said Colton was like a golden retriever chasing a frisbee. Any ball that actually hit the ground was like a personal offense to him. Whether it was center, left, or even right field, which he actually liked to play because it gave him a chance to catch guys lollygagging to first base, Colton had a way of getting to balls that everybody else had given up on, fans included. And so just about every game, it seemed, there would be a collective groan and then a big cheer when he'd lay out for a ball and come out of his dive with his face full of grass and the ball tucked like a prize in his glove. The first thing he thought of when he met the other incoming freshmen on the team was wristbands. It took all of two minutes with these dudes, mostly Louisiana boys from all over the state, to remind him of pretty much every all-star team he'd ever been on. At the end of every every season, Colton got picked for all-stars because he was too good to be ignored. But he didn't fit in. It was supposed to be a privilege to play on the team, but the way Colton saw it, the privilege went in reverse. All-Stars was an excuse for the rich kids in the league to have some extra fun. They would show up, not just with a brand new bat for the first postseason practice, but with personalized helmets, new cleats, a pair of batting gloves, and a bunch of other shit you didn't need, but Colton couldn't help but secretly covet anyway. All of it tucked in a brand new baseball bag, of course. Yeah, these freshmen were just 18-year-old versions of the wristband crowd for sure. Ball players of privilege. His mind went back to that first all-star practice when he was 16. That was the first regular season after Colton had really filled out. He was stronger, faster, 
and just flat out better than everybody else. But he was still an outsider. That much was clear when the whole rest of the team had showed up in two SUVs that two of the older ones drove. Colton could still see them filing onto the field. Every fucking one of them wearing some matching wristbands one of their parents had bought everybody. The moment had burned deep into his craw. And the worst part of it was, some part of him wanted a wristband too. He wasn't a teenager anymore. A lot had changed. But some things, he could see, were universal. He had picked the general studies major at LSUE because that's what most of the other freshmen had done. And anyway, Colton couldn't imagine a future even two years down the road. His only goal, if you wanted to call it that, was to make the team and avoid flunking out. Things were happening so fast. Colton was still getting used to the smell of fresh air, to sleeping with his guard down, to the new cell phone his mom had helped him buy. The other freshmen had set up a text group, and they all joked in the chat that they were majoring in baseball. Colton didn't really care for any of these dudes. At best, they were competitors for playing time. And at worst, they represented a class of people he'd never really cared for. But they weren't wrong about why they were all there. A ball player moved to Eunice, a town barely big enough to support both a McDonald's and a Burger King, for one reason. And that reason was a place called Bengal Stadium, which technically wasn't in the city limits anyway. As far as ball players go, Colton wasn't especially superstitious. To his mind, he liked the way Coach Bo had phrased it when one of his high school teammates had started doing an elaborate ceremony before he stepped up to the plate. It took him more than 60 seconds to go through all the gestures and genuflects and signs of the cross. You couldn't afford to be superstitious, Coach Bo had said. <clears throat> Just being a little stitious was enough. But the day he met Tina would be forever burned in his mind because of the song thing. It was sometime during that first week of practice, when he was still in the habit of getting to the field an hour early, even though that meant walking 20 minutes from his apartment instead of waiting to ride with his roommates. But Colton liked to have some time alone to just stare out at the field and breathe in the fresh air mixed with gasoline and three-in-one oil from the lawnmowers. Which was exactly what he was doing when someone behind him said, what you want for your song? He looked back to see an older man in a purple Bengals hat sitting high in his head, the way some older Cajun dudes wear them. The man was just standing there, waiting for an answer. Colton didn't know his name, but he'd seen the older man around. He had a shock of skin that hung down below his chin like a turkey. A quiet old, a quiet old guy, but nice enough. It occurred to him then that he needed to pump his roommate, a couple of sophomores, for all the information he could get. Coach Larson had put him with the older dudes, a lanky pitcher from Laplace everybody called Snick, and another guy named Clint, the backup shortstop, because if he roomed with a freshman, they would ask Colton to buy them beer. But Colton hadn't said more than ten words to either of them since he moved in. It took him a second to remember about the songs. The other freshmen were all excited about it, sending Spotify links back and forth and going on about how the girls in the stands might respond as they walked out to the batter's box. Colton hadn't even bothered to listen to any of the tracks, 
Just based on the names alone, he knew he wouldn't like any of it. His taste ran more towards the guitar rock his mom was always blasting in the car or on the big-ass, old-school speakers they moved from apartment to apartment when Colton was growing up. Yeah, I'm not for sure yet, he said, eventually. The old dude had just stood there waiting, in no hurry at all. When he didn't respond, Colton asked, Is there, like, a list or something I could pick from? Colton was just piecing it together that the man ran the press box. The man just shook his head and laughed. Nobody ever asked me that, he said. To tell you the truth, most of these guys, their song is pretty much the first thing they want to talk about. It drives Coach nuts. So, I'm earning points then, Colton had ventured. The man's face went frosty, and when he looked away, Colton had the feeling that his trouble with the law wasn't a secret. Well, I wouldn't go that far, the man said, and just drifted off. Colton did a few laps along the fence line his mind on the small imperfections and contours of the warning track, and didn't think much more about it. Before long, the assistant coaches and players started trickling in, and then practice started. He forgot all about the walkout song, but that night Snick drove him and Clint to a bar in town called Cecil's, and that's when everything changed. Colton had only made it as far into town as the convenience store, about a quarter mile from the campus. He wasn't especially curious about Eunice. He had already had about as much new in his life as he could stand. But a cold beer or two sounded pretty damn good, and so he went along. Eunice looked sleepy and depressed to Colton. There was just one main drag with the usual stuff on it. A Winn-Dixie, dollar store, and a big Walmart right at the city limits at the east end of Highway 190 that ran right through town. Lake Charles was like New York City compared to Eunice. Which was fine by Colton, because he was there to play baseball, not to be fucking around. His mom had been living in Houston for the past year or so, but she was trying to get the cash together to move closer to Colton. They talked about getting an apartment together, an idea Colton secretly longed for. He wasn't so sure he was ready to be on his own. There were a few trucks and a shitty Toyota Corolla parked at odd angles in the gravel parking lot of Cecil's. The bar didn't look like much, just a wide cinder block building with the name painted on the side. It was right across from Ace Auto, a parts house with an old Honda three-wheeler suspended from a chain way up in the air. Colton could tell it was a rowdy place before they even got inside. And when the smell of the bar, beer, cigarettes, and bleach first hit him, an instinct he should have listened to told him it was trouble. He told himself he would have left right away if he'd had his own wheels. But then he saw Tina behind the bar. Clinton made a big show when they walked in, throwing his hands up and calling, Play ball! Like he owned the place. Colton was supposed to be the rookie among them, but he might have been the only one with some sense. He knew from experience that kind of entrance was a good way to get your nose broke in a place like this. She had dark, full hair like you'd see in a shampoo commercial, and later on Colton would come to love the way it fell across his face when she was on top of him, narrating her pleasure in intense whispers. But in that first moment, there was nothing but cold appraisal in her look. Her eyes burned through Clint, skipped past Snick, and settled on Colton. She was drinking him in, 
and all of a sudden he was thirsty. Apparently they had live music at Cecil's on Saturday nights. That old school Cajun stuff where it sounded like somebody had the singer's nuts in a vice. But it was a weeknight, so things were relatively quiet. They found a place at the bar, the little dance floor with the tiny bandstand behind them, and Tina ignored them for a while. Snick said the dude that owned the place was a sight to see. People called him Titsi or Titsi or some shit like that. Colton never quite understood what it was. If you let it slip that you played ball for the Bengals, he'd usually give you a round on the house. Snick said he looked Snick said he looked like some rapper from the 90s, a dude named Heavy D, as if that meant anything to Colton. You're saying he's black? Colton was asking under his breath when the man himself walked in. Colton got the picture then, and what he saw put him on edge. The owner was a heavy-set white dude in a tracksuit. All he was missing was the gold chains. He went right to the cash register, acting like he owned the place, because apparently he did. The next day before practice, they had their first big team meeting with Coach Larson. When one of the assistants started passing out what Coach called the no-go list of off-limits places in town, Colton had a sinking feeling, even before he saw Cecil's listed in the number two spot. Some kind of private strip club called the Trailer Park was number one. But by then, Colton had already had Tina's number in his phone. He could almost hear himself pleading his case. She just grabbed my phone off the bar, coach. Which was true. He had just answered a text from his mom and set the phone down on the bar when she reached over and grabbed it up. She'd been coy with him over the course of two Bud Lights while Snick and Clint played darts, but all of a sudden she had his new phone in her hand and was punching in her number. Colton could have swore the owner had glanced up from his paper when Tina reached over to grab his phone. He didn't have time to think about it because too much was happening at once. Tina had his full attention. He found the gumption to ask, Can I add your picture? Right about the time this funky old song came on the jukebox. She tossed her hair to one side and gave him a look that might have melted the brass rail, and he snapped the picture. The bass line of the tune gave him an instant but vague memory of his parents dancing in some distant living room. The owner might have been scowling at him. His dick had gone on high alert. Tina still had his phone. And the singer went, When I get off of this mountain, you know where I want to go. He had that high country whine to his voice that Colton didn't ordinarily like. Straight down the Mississippi River to the Gulf of Mexico. The way Tina had looked at him was an invitation to possibility, and he damn sure wasn't thinking about baseball in that moment. She leaned over to return his phone and whispered in his ear, No cell phones in the bar. She leaned over to return his phone and whispered in his ear, no cell phones in the bar. Except she didn't just say it. She breathed it, and he, and he knew right then it was on. When he heard the next lines of the song, it was like it was speaking to him. To Lake Charles, Louisiana, little Bessing girl I once knew. She told me just to come on by if there was anything she could do. It was something like 3 a.m. when he laid in bed still damp from the shower and the animated memory of Tina in his mind and on his hand, when he remembered enough of the lyrics to look up the song. 
He fell asleep listening to Up on Cripple Creek on a loop. The band's name was The Band. Colton couldn't decide if that was brilliant or the stupidest thing he'd ever heard. When Snick looked over at him as the no-go list was passed out, Colton realized the son of a bitch must have known damn well that Cecil's was off-limits. A sudden rage boiled in Colton's stomach, and he might have lost his cool right there if Coach hadn't said they were going to scrimmage and started pointing at each player. A-team, he would say, pointing to one of the starters, and then for each freshman on the team, B-team. And so Colton walked out onto the field, not just with something to prove, but with Tina, Snick's willful ignorance, and the sting of his relegation to the B-team churning in his mind. As he tugged too hard at the laces of his spikes in the dugout, a question broke through the noise in his head. Are you a man or a mouse? It was a question he had asked himself on the first night in jail. Resurrected from some distant memory of a challenge on the elementary school playground, there it was, front and center in his mind, demanding an answer. When he tried to push it from his mind, two more words appeared, except this time it wasn't his voice, it was Coach Bose. Colton could hear that folksy, black cane field accent saying, show me, show me. He walked towards the plate to lead off the top of the first inning for the B team, his batting glove still tucked in his back pocket. Colton took a pinch of grass and rubbed it in his palms, surveying the defense. They were playing him straight up. He hadn't yet settled into the box when the old dude in the press box played about five seconds of Up on Cripple Creek, testing out the song Colton had told him he wanted. When the singer crooned those lines in that high whine of his, from Lake Charles, Louisiana, pronouncing it in that country way, he felt like a switch had been flipped. He didn't know the right-hander on the mound, a big-eared dude that was supposedly going to Mississippi State next year. But after the first pitch, Colton knew the score. The pitcher threw a high note of chin music, a cutter running high and inside to lay claim to the inside part of the plate. Fair, but not friendly. A couple of the other B-team guys in the dugout made a low sound to voice their objection. Colton barely heard it, focused as he was on the pitcher's next delivery, but he still registered the support on some level. He guessed that Big Country on the mound would come back and try to paint the inside corner again. So Colton took his time getting back in the box, setting up just a hair further off the plate. It was the kind of thing a sharp catcher would notice. The fastball was right where he expected it, and Colton connected so sweetly he thought he'd gone yard for an instant. He felt a spike of disappointment because a long ball wouldn't give him a chance to show his wheels. But he saw in the next moment that the ball didn't have the height it slammed into the wall with a thud like a sucker punch. By then, he'd already made his turn at first and was throttling back as he cruised into second, the play in front of him. But when he saw the left fielder fail to field the ball cleanly, Colton poured on the power, accelerating like a racehorse for a couple long strides. He wanted to show he had another gear. The throw into third wasn't even close. Colton pulled in, standing up as the B team, his brothers in baseball just like that, banged on the ceiling of the dugout and hooped and hollered. He took a deep breath, relieved, and then he thought of Tina. He went two for two at the plate in the four innings they played, 
the B team putting up six runs to the starters three. In right field, Colton robbed the cleanup hitter of a double, and on another play, almost caught the left fielder, who he had already pegged as the weakest of the starting outfielders, sleeping after a weak single to right. The only reason Colton didn't get the force at first was because the first baseman was sleeping too. But it didn't matter. The challenge question in Colton's mind had been answered. He was no mouse. After the scrimmage, all Coach said was, Way to be, Lacombe, because that's all he had to say. He didn't want to meet Tina at the bar, but she couldn't leave and he couldn't imagine not seeing her. So he pressured Snick to drive them over to Cecil's. It was the least he could do, Colton said, since Snick was the one that put him on the wrong side of Coach's rules in the first place. He knew the logic was rickety, and so did Snick, but that didn't stop them. He and Tina ended up kissing and grinding against each other in the dark alcove that led to the bathrooms, her leg riding up against him while he caressed her neck with the tip of his nose, breathing her in. And really, that was all it took for Colton to fall under her spell. Tina was different. At least that's how it felt in those first electric few weeks when every aspect of his life took on a static charge. He was living in a sustained rush of euphoria that felt infinite. He was the only freshman that dressed out for their first game against Alexandria. Colton didn't get into the game, but a few days later, when they played Monroe College up at their place in the northern part of the state, he pinch hit in the seventh inning, driving in the tying run on second base and staying in right to finish out the game. By the next game, he was at the top of the lineup card. And then, just something like five weeks after joining the team, Colton made his first start. Tina worked a lot, and so he ended up at Cecil's way more than he wanted to. And even though it was getting to be pretty much an open secret on the team, Colton made a rule for himself that he wouldn't worry as long as he was doing well in the field. It was hard to worry when everything felt so right. Snick started... Snick started just giving him the keys to his car, and Colton would put a few bucks worth of gas on his way back to the apartment. Sometimes Tina showed up after she closed, and they stayed in his room, making noise deep into the night. Some of the guys might have been jealous, but nobody was worried because the team was on a tear, and no, ball, and no baseball player on earth will fuck with a winning streak. There was something special about Tina, she was deeper than other girls he had known. Freer, too. It was total sexual abandon in bed, like a drug. It was as if their encounters happened in a dream state. Colton almost couldn't believe it was real, the way they connected. It wasn't love. It was a kind of parallel dimension, an altogether different kind of experience. There was just no comparison to the other girls Colton had been with. None of his other girlfriends or one-night stands had ever quite surrendered to the experience the way Tina did. At some point early on, Colton got introduced to the little Cecil. Tina called him Teet C. Everybody did, but Colton just couldn't do it. His perspective was, a person could decide to call themselves whatever dumb name they wanted, but when the rest of the world started entertaining their nonsense, it wasn't good for anybody. And anyway, it wasn't like Colton was planning to make friends with the dude. The way Tina talked, he was an asshole of a boss, which wasn't a surprise to Colton. All he needed was one look at the dude to size him up. 
flat brim hat, sole patch, an extra large Atlanta Braves jersey. Colton figured the guy was either stupid or dangerous. If he had any money, he would have bet on the first. Tina Tina told a story about T.T. trying to rub up against her one slow Sunday afternoon at the bar, as if that was evidence of his assholery. But Colton knew better than that. The way Tina strutted around behind the bar, it was a miracle the whole damn town of Eunice wasn't sniffing around Cecil's every day. Colton wasn't in a position to judge another man for something like that. If you had a pair hanging between your legs, you noticed Tina. It was that simple. But Colton didn't really give a fuck about some bar owner in town. All he cared about was baseball, Tina, and helping his mom get settled in. She could be a real bitch to Colton sometimes, but she was his mom, and all they had was each other. So when she told him she'd found the job in Lafayette, barely 45 minutes from Eunice, he was stoked. His life was like a come-from-behind rally all of a sudden, everything breaking his way. Hell, even his classes were fun. He was taking freshman comp, which seemed stupid and hard at first, but it turned out that Tina was a good writer. She brought him a nice little notebook one day and wrote out lewd examples of the kind of sentences they were learning in class. His penis, engorged and throbbing, slid into place. A perfect, a positive phrase. She taught him, damn, that girl was good. Everybody on the team had started calling him Colt 45, and so now at home games, when Up on Cripple Creek came on, people in the stands would start firing off imaginary pistols, and the guys in the dugout would would yell shit like, lock and load! His name and his face were in the game day program. Everything was just clicking. And when Tina called him from the bar to say she was about ready to quit Cecil's, to maybe go back to school or at least get a job at the casino in Kinder. It felt like icing on the cake. His mind flashed to an image of Tina sitting with her long legs crossed in his English class, and he felt a powerful stir in his groin. He asked if there was anything he could do to help. Actually, yeah, she said. Just the way she breathed into the phone was enough to make him hard. Do you think you can borrow Snick's car, she asked. He didn't ask why. He just told her yes. Good, she said. I just have to go to Beaumont and pick something up. Then TC says he'll cash me out, free and clear. All right, so that's the first uh, chapter. I'm organizing the book in innings instead of chapters. Um, and it's sort of the longest one. And uh, there are definitely some flaws. But anyway, this just just... I would say that's probably uh, about a 70% approximation of what I tend to uh, sound like at my best uh, reading. Um, Realistically, I would have redone most of that. This is just a first blush. But again, enough enough hedging. Um, Appreciate any and all feedback, brother. Thank you, man. Bye.